Letter Nine of Letters from a Self-Made Merchant to His Son by George Horace Lorimer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peak. Letter Nine from John Graham at Hot Springs, Arkansas, to his son Pierpont at the Union Stockyards in Chicago. Mr. Pierpont has been investing more heavily in roses than his father thinks his means warrant, and he tries to turn his thoughts to staple groceries. Hot Springs, January 30th, 1890 blank. Dear Pierpont, I knew right off that I had made a mistake when I opened the enclosed and saw that it was a bill for $52 for roses sent as per orders to Miss Mabel Dashcombe. I don't just place Miss Dashcombe, but if she's the daughter of old Job Dashcombe on the open board, I should say on general principles that she was a fine girl to let some other fellow marry. The last time I saw her, she inventoried about $10,000 as she stood, allowing that her diamonds would scratch glass, and that's more capital than any woman has a right to tie up on her back. I don't care how rich her father is. And Job's fortune is one of that brand which foots up to a million in the newspapers and leaves the heirs in debt to the lawyers who settle the estate. Of course, I've never had any real experience in this sparking business, except with your ma, but I've watched from the other side of the fence while a heap of fellows were getting it, and I should say that marrying a woman like Mabel Dashcombe would be the first step toward becoming a grass widower. I'll bet if you'll tell her you're making twelve a week and ain't going to get any more till you earn it, you'll find that you can't push within a mile of her, even on a Sioux icebreaker. She's one of those women with a heart like a stock ticker. It doesn't beat over anything except money. Of course, you're in no position yet to think of being engaged, even, and that's why I'm a little afraid that you may be planning to get married. But a twelve-dollar clerk, who owes fifty-two dollars for roses, needs a keeper more than a wife. I want to say right here that there always comes a time to the fellow who blows fifty-two dollars at a lick on roses when he thinks how many staple groceries he could have bought with the money. After all, there's no fool like a young fool, because in the nature of things he's got a long time to live. I suppose I'm fanning the air when I ask you to be guided by my judgment in this matter, because, while a young fellow will consult his father about buying a horse, he's cocksure of himself when it comes to picking a wife. Marriages may be made in heaven, but most engagements are made in the back parlor with a gas so low that a fellow doesn't really get a square look at what he's taken. While a man doesn't see much of a girl's family when he's courting, he's apt to see a good deal of it when he's housekeeping, and while he doesn't marry his wife's father, there's nothing in the marriage vow to prevent the old man from borrowing money of him, and you can bet if he's old Job Dashcombe he'll do it. A man can't pick his own mother, but he can pick his son's mother, and when he chooses a father-in-law who plays the bucket shops, he needn't be surprised if his own son plays the races. Never marry a poor girl who's been raised like a rich one. She's simply traded the virtues of the poor for the vices of the rich without going long on their good points. To marry for money, or to marry without money, is a crime. There's no real objection to marrying a woman with a fortune, but there is to marrying a fortune with a woman. Money makes the mare go, and it makes her cut up, too, unless she's used to it, and you drive her with a snaffle bit. While you're at it, there's nothing like picking out a good-looking wife, because even the handsomest woman looks homely sometimes, so you get a little variety. But a homely one can only look worse than usual. Beauty is only skin-deep, but that's deep enough to satisfy any reasonable man. I want to say right here that to get any sense out of a proverb, I usually find that I have to turn it wrong side out.
Then, too, if a fellow's bound to marry a fool, and a lot of men have to if they're going to hitch up into a well-matched team, there's nothing like picking a good-looking one. I simply mention these things in a general way, because it seems to me, from the gate at which you're starting off, that you'll likely find yourself roped and branded any day, without quite knowing how it happened, and I want you to understand that the girl who marries you for my money is getting a package of green goods in more ways than one. I think, though, if you really understood what marrying on twelve a week meant, you would have bought a bedroom set instead of roses with that fifty-two you owe. Speaking of marrying the old man's money by proxy, naturally takes me back to my old town in Missouri, and the case of Chauncey Witherspoon Hoskins. Chauncey's father was the whole village, barring the railroad station and the saloon, and of course Chauncey thought that he was something of a pup himself. So he was, but not just the kind that Chauncey thought he was. He stood about five foot three in his pumps, had a nice pinky complexion, pretty wavy hair, and a curly mustache. All he needed was a blue ribbon round his neck to make you call, Here, Fido, when he came into the room. Still, I believe he must have been pretty popular with the ladies, because I can't think of him to this day without wanting to punch his head. At the church sociables, he used to hop around among them, chipping and chirping like a dicky bird picking up seed and he was a great hand to play the piano and sing saddish sweet songs to them. Always said the smooth thing and said it easy. Never had to choke and swallow to fetch it up. Never stepped through his partner's dress when he began to dance or got flustered when he brought her refreshments and poured the coffee in her lap to cool instead of in the saucer. We boys who couldn't walk across the floor without feeling that our pants had hiked up till they showed our feet to the knees— and that we were carrying a couple of canvassed hams where our hands ought to be, didn't like him, but the girls did. You can trust a woman's taste on everything except men, and it's mighty lucky that she slips up there, or we'd pretty nigh all be bachelors. I might add that you can't trust a man's taste on women either, and that's pretty lucky too, because there are a good many old maids in the world as it is. One time or another Chauncey lolled in the best room in every house in our town, and we used to wonder how he managed to browse up and down the streets that way without getting into the pound. I never found out till after I married your ma, and she told me Chauncey's heart secrets. It really wasn't violating any confidence, because he told them to every girl in town. Seems he used to get terribly sad as soon as he was left alone with a girl, and began to hint about a tragedy in his past, something that had blighted his whole life and left him without the power to love again, and lots more slop from the same pail. Of course, every girl in that town had known Chauncey since he wore short pants, and ought to have known that the nearest to a tragedy he had ever been was when he sat in the top gallery of a Chicago theater and saw a lot of barnstormers play Othello. But some people, and especially very young people, don't think anything's worth believing unless it's hard to believe. Chauncey worked along these lines until he was twenty-four, and then he made a mistake. Most of the girls that he had grown up with had married off, and while he was waiting for a new lot to come along, he began to shine up to the widow Sharpless, a powerful, well-preserved woman of forty or thereabouts, who had been born with her eye-teeth cut. He found her uncommon sympathetic, and when Chauncey finally came out of his trance, he was the stepfather of the widow's four children. She was very kind to Chauncey, and treated him like one of her own sons, but she was very, very firm. There was no gallivanting off alone, and when they went out in double harness, strangers used to annoy him considerable by patting him on the head and saying to his wife, 
"'What a bright-looking chap your son is, Mrs. Hoskins.' She was almost seventy when Chauncey buried her a while back, and they say that he began to take notice again on the way home from the funeral. Anyway, he crowded his mourning into sixty days, and I reckon there was plenty of room in them to hold all his grief without stretching, and his courting into another sixty. And four months after date he presented his matrimonial papers for acceptance. Said he was tired of this mother-and-son foolishness, and wasn't going to leave any room for doubt this time. Didn't propose to have people sizing up his wife for one of his ancestors any more. So he married Lulu Littlebrown, who was just turned eighteen. Chauncey was over fifty then, and wisened up like a late pippin that has been out overnight in the early frost. He took Lou to Chicago for the honeymoon, and Mose Greenbaum, who happened to be going up to town for his fall goods, got into the parlor car with them. By and by the porter came round and stopped beside Chauncey. "'Wouldn't your daughter like a pillow under her head?' says he. Chauncey just groaned. Then, "'Get you, Senegambian son of darkness!' And the porter just naturally got. Mose had been taking it all in, and now he went back to the smoking-room and passed the word along to the drummers there. Every little while one of them would lounge up the aisle to Chauncey and ask if he couldn't lend his daughter a magazine, or give her an orange, or bring her a drink.' and the language that he gave back in return for these courtesies wasn't at all fitting in a bridegroom. Then Mose had another happy thought and dropped off at a way station and wired the clerk at the Palmer house. When they got to the hotel, the clerk was on the lookout for them, and Chauncey hadn't more than signed his name before he reached out over his diamond and said, "'Ah, Mr. Hoskins, would you like to have your daughter near you?' I simply mentioned Chauncey in passing, as an example of the foolishness of thinking you can take any chances with a woman who has really decided that she wants to marry, or that you can average up matrimonial mistakes. And I want you to remember that marrying the wrong girl is the one mistake that you've got to live with all your life. I think, though, that if you tell Mabel what your assets are, she'll decide she won't be your particular mistake. Your affectionate father, John Graham End of letter 9